Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello and welcome to this edition of the EVE Podcast. I'm your host, Alice Brown, and today I'm going to be talking to Sue Dyson about the forthcoming EVE article that she's co-authored with Munier Gruer, Danica Pollard, uh, entitled An Investigation into the Occurrence of and Risk Factors for Concurrent Suspensory Ligament Injuries in Horses with Hind Limb Proximal Suspensory Desmopathy. Sue's an extensively published, world-renowned expert in equine orthopaedics, and I think needs no further introduction. So welcome, Sue. Thank you very much. Um, Sue, I wondered if we could initially just talk a little bit about hind limb proximal suspensory desmopathy to recap for the listeners where we are at present in terms of risk factors investigation and treatment options for hind limb proximal suspensory desmopathy as a single pathology. So hind limb PSD is a common cause of lameness and poor performance. Could you possibly talk us through what's understood at present about the causes of, of hind limb proximal suspensory desmopathy? Yes, I think that we are not sure what the causes are, and it may be multifactorial. The historical work has shown that dressage horses tend to be at higher risk than horses from other disciplines, but horses from all disciplines are involved. And interestingly, in this most recent study, we saw a rise in the involvement of general purpose riding horses. We think that breed may be influential in that warm blood and warm blood crosses seem to have a high prevalence. Although there are breeds such as the Peruvian Paso and the Andalusian who probably have a strong genetic predisposition. I think that we believe that this is probably a repetitive strain type injury uh, and that uh, that may be superimposed over an inherent degenerative type of change within the suspensory ligaments. We do know that there is an association of conformation and proximal suspensory desmopathy with horses with large tarsal angles being at higher risk than horses with smaller tarsal angles. So that is the horse with the straight hop conformation is at higher risk. I don't think we know for sure whether in not in some horses that those that are working in a poor frame and have got a poor development of their thoracolumbosacral epaxial muscles are at risk because they are not using their hind limbs properly and therefore may be overstraining the hind limbs. That, that's something I think we need to learn more about. But I had the feeling that we also were seeing some horses, some young horses, which were developing suspensory ligament injuries in several limbs, more than just both hind limbs. And I was wondering whether or not there was a different form of disease or um, the same disease, but with some innate risk, which made them more prone to develop lameness so much earlier on. So I think it's probably multifactorial and we still need to tease it out. We do see some breeding stallions which seem to have a disproportionate number of offspring which have proximal suspensory desmopathy. So I think that genetics probably has a role to play, but we haven't figured it out as yet in the competition horses, certainly. 
Okay, brilliant. Thank you. So it, it sort of seems to be a combination of a of degenerative condition with work influencing it potentially then, um, sort of seen in different proportions in different ages of horses. Yes, I, I think if you look at histologically at, at horses which have got proximal suspensory dysmopathy, the changes are predominantly at the um, microscopic level are degenerative in nature. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Um, in terms of, of looking at these sort of horses, um, how, could, how would you approach a diagnostic workup um, for hind limb proximal suspensory desmopathy? Well, I think, first of all, we have to recognise that there are, generally speaking, no localising clinical signs because the proximal part of the suspensory ligament is lying against the plantar aspect of the third metatarsal bone and it's pushed against the bone effectively by the plantar metatarsal fascia, which runs transversely across it attaching to the heads of the second and fourth metatarsal bones. So it's in a little compartment there. And so even if it's enlarged, you won't find any palpable enlargement in the area. Although with an acute case, there might be some edematous soft tissue swelling um, and some localized heat. But in the vast majority, there are no localizing clinical signs. So we are therefore dependent upon uh, first of all, recognising that the horse is lame, bearing in mind that many affected horses are affected bilaterally. So we may just be presented with a horse with a bilateral lack of hind limb engagement and impulsion when ridden rather than an obvious unilateral lameness. So I think that recognising that there is a lameness and that the horse is not performing satisfactorily is crucial. And for me, that generally involves seeing the horse ridden. I think we're missing a huge amount unless we see the horse ridden because uh, many of the less severely affected horses will have no detectable gait abnormalities in hand and on the lunge, and you will only see lameness um, when ridden, and sometimes only when the horse is performing specific movements as well. So having established that the horse is not moving correctly behind, we are then absolutely dependent on using local anaesthetic techniques in order to localise the source or sources of pain. And my starting point is determined by the clinical evaluation. So if based on my clinical assessment, I do not think that there are any signs suggestive of fetlock, paston or foot pain, I start by doing a low four-point block of the plantar and plantar metatarsal nerves um, immediately proximal to the digital flexor tendon sheath. So I'm asking the question, does the horse have fetlock, paston or foot pain with the expectation that the answer is no? So in the majority of horses, there will be no improvement, whereas in some horses, there will actually be accentuation in the baseline lameness because we've taken away some of the proprioceptive feedback to the brain. And so the horse loads the limb more normally and accentuates um, the pain and therefore lameness. So having done the low four-point block, I then perform perineural algaes with a deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve. I do this in a weight-bearing position. I palpate the head of the splint bone and I insert the needle immediately planter to the bone, inserting the needle horizontally to a depth of about one centimetre, where I inject 3ml of mepibicane. I reassess the horse 10 minutes after that injection and would expect to see very substantial improvement in the baseline lameness. Now, in some horses which present with a bilaterally symmetrical lack of hind limb push, I often elect to perform perineural algaes with the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve in both hind limbs at the same time, 
because I think that is a better way of being able to assess improvement. You might expect if the horse was bilaterally lame, if you block one, the horse successfully, and you've isolated the source of pain, the horse should immediately go lame on the other limb. But that doesn't always happen. And I've had my fingers burnt previously. So that's why I, in some horses with bilaterally symmetrical problems, I block both hind limbs, the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve simultaneously. And then obviously, because I've assessed them ridden initially, I will also assess them ridden afterwards. So I evaluate them in hand first and then ridden. There is a small proportion of horses in which I may see, say, 75% improvement following the deep branch of lateral plantar nerve analgesia, um, but I have a low-grade residual lameness. I would then choose to block the tibial nerve uh, because that's not going to take away all hot pain, but will take away suspensory ligament pain. And I would expect that that to result in resolution of the lameness. I think that it's hugely important that we realize that this is not a specific nerve block, that whilst it can take out suspensory ligament pain, perineural analgesia, the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve, can influence tarsal pain. I have removed pain caused by a central tarsal bone fracture within 10 minutes of injection. So I think it is very important that when we go on to perform diagnostic imaging, that we evaluate not only the metatarsal region, but also the tarsus as well. So my radiographic and ultrasonographic evaluations will include the HOC and the metatarsal region. I always also, in horses with an overt lameness, will on a subsequent occasion come back and block the tarsometatarsal joint to evaluate the response to that, just to make sure that I'm doubly sure that I'm not dealing with any distal hock joint pain. So having done the blocks, I then proceed to radiography of the tarsal, proximal metatarsal region and ultrasonography. And ultrasonography involves the plantar soft tissues of the tarsus and all the soft tissues of the metatarsal region, including the suspensory ligament branches. I think we have to look systematically at all the soft tissue structures, bearing in mind that this is not a specific suspensory ligament block. So we could be taking out pain, for example, from the accessory ligament of the deep digital flexor tendon. So I think it is crucial that we evaluate each soft tissue structure carefully and in a systematic way. The suspensory ligament proximally is not easy to look at. Um, I use a convex array um, or yes, a, a, trans, a linear probe which has a convex array setting. Uh, and I use that convex array setting for the transverse images because that gives me a better opportunity to evaluate the maximum width of the suspensory ligament that's possible. And then I use the, the probe in a linear setting for the longitudinal images. And I'm expecting to see uh, normally a variety of changes ultrasonographically, maybe enlargement of the suspensory ligament, reduced space between it and the accessory ligament of the deep digital flexor tendon, and alterations in echodynicity, and loss of long linear parallel echoes in longitudinal images. I also evaluate the suspensory ligament bone interface for the presence of any enthesious reaction. Uh, in the vast majority of horses, I think we will reach a satisfactory diagnosis using only radiography and ultrasonography. Um, in a very small proportion of horses, we may elect to perform magnetic resonance imaging 
if the changes on ultrasonography were equivocal. But in the vast majority of horses, we rely solely on radiography and ultrasonography. Okay, brilliant. Um, how, how do you grade these cases um, in terms of ultrasonography? Um, how are you grading them? Um, we set up a scheme for a previous study where we were looking at the size and whether or not you've got diffuse areas of reduced epigenicity or uh, areas which are anechogenic. Um, and we use that in a fairly systematic way. Okay, brilliant. And are you grading them one to four or what, what scheme are you no, using? No, basically it's a mild, moderate and severe, normal, mild, moderate or severe. Okay, brilliant. Um, do you find that the level of lameness correlates with the severity of the ultrasonographic findings? Uh, not necessarily so, no. Um, I think that the, there's a variety of different reasons for that. Um, you could have quite a lot of enlargement and therefore potential compartment syndrome without there being a lot of ultrastructural ultra changes within the ligament. So you might not have anechogenic areas, but that horse may be having more pain than a horse with a smaller ligament, um, which occupies uh, less space, as it were. So I, I think there's not a good correlation between the degree of lameness. And obviously, when lameness is bilateral, it's very difficult to grade because they're, the two limbs are balancing themselves out. So I think when you start grading hind limb lameness, which is bilateral, it can be somewhat misleading. Okay, and the ultrasound isn't particularly helpful in, in correlating either. No. Um, could you possibly just outline what kind of treatment options you would consider in these cases? Well, when we first dis described proximal suspensory desmopathy in hind limbs, we treated them conservatively. And of my first 42 cases that were documented, we had a 14% success rate with conservative management. So clearly that was not very satisfactory. So we've tried lots of other things. We've tried local infiltration with a variety of different drugs. I think as a short-term fix, corticosteroids can produce soundness for a while, but I don't think it provides a long-term uh, solution. I think that shockwave therapy or radial pressure wave therapy can provide short-term pain relief. But again, I don't think it provides a long-term fix. Um, the uh, type 4 laser therapy is an option. In our hands, it has not been successful, though other people have reported good results. Um, my favourite treatment, unquestionably, is surgical uh, management by neurectomy of the deep branch of the lateral plantar nerve and plantar fasciotomy. And we have a 78% success rate for that, for return to full athletic function, for a minimum of two years. The only caveat to that is that I will not recommend surgery in horses with very large tarsal angles. So if the tarsal angle is 165 degrees or greater, I will not advocate surgery because I think that those horses are likely to get worse postoperatively. Um, and I don't like being involved in horses deteriorating following surgery. Um, I also look carefully at their fetlock conformation and evaluate the suspensory branches very carefully because I don't want to be doing surgery in horses, which I think have already got some compromise in function, biomechanical function of the, of the suspensory apparatus and who are beginning to sink in their fetlocks. And maybe on the ultrasound of their suspensory branches, you will see a mild diffuse loss of echogenicity and loss of long linear parallel echoes in um, the longitudinal images. And I think those are also poor candidates but with careful case selection, I think surgery offers by far the best outcome. 
Okay, great. Thank you. I should just comment. I think that there have been um, people that have been using biological therapies and in our hands that has also not been very successful. Okay, thank you. Um, Moving on to the the sort of paper that we're discussing here, um, you've been looking at concurrent suspensory ligament injuries in horses with hind limb proximal suspensory desmopathy. Um, What were the concurrent suspensory ligament injuries that you were investigating? Um, And could you just talk us through the aims of the current study? Yes, um, we were looking at concurrent suspensory branch injuries in either the hind limbs or the forelimbs or the coexistence of forelimb proximal suspensory desmitis. And we did the study because I had had the clinical impression that we had seen a disproportionate number of young horses with multiple suspensory ligament injuries. And I wanted to see if this clinical impression was actually borne out by the figures. So we did a retrospective study over 10 years involving all the horses with hind limb proximal suspensory desmopathy that we had seen during that period, which was more than 900 horses. And we divided them into two age categories, those that were five years of age or less, and those which were six years of age or more. And then we looked at their work history. And in the young horses, we classified them as either being unbacked, i.e. they'd done no work at all, uh, horses that had been recently backed within the previous three months, those that were in light work, which was classified as intermittent, low-intensity ridden work, or full ridden work. And horses of all ages, those of up to five years of age and six years of old or over, full work was defined as being used for their intended use in regular work for at least five days a week um, and doing normal exercise and training. So we wanted to look at the age distribution of horses with hind limb proximal suspensory desmopathy um, to document coexistence, suspensory branch injury in any limb or fall in proximal suspensory desmitis, and then to see if we could identify risk factors for concurrent suspensory ligament injuries. Okay, and um, thank you. Um, In terms of clinical signs, what were you seeing in these cases with suspensory ligament branch injury and the forelimb proximal suspensory desmitis? Um, And could you go through the diagnostic workup that you've included in these cases in addition to your workup of the hind limb proximal suspensory desmitis? Yeah, well, to consider the forelimb proximal suspensory desmitis, Um, Those were all horses which presented with concurrent forelimb lameness, generally with no associated um, clinical signs related to the proximal metacarpal region. So those horses would have undergone diagnostic anesthesia, starting um, either with a palmar digital block or palmar blocks at the base of the proximal sesamoid bones, depending on whether or not there was an index of suspicion of foot-related pain. Um, assuming that the response was negative, we would have then done a low four-point block, uh, which was generally negative unless the horse had suspensory branch injuries in addition, and then followed that by uh, anesthesia of the palmetocarpal nerves at subcarpal level with complete resolution of the lameness following that. Now, when I'm doing my initial clinical evaluation of all horses, I always palpate 
the forelimbs and the hind limbs, irrespective of the history. And one of the um, techniques that I use with the limbs load bearing is to run my thumbs down the dorsal and palmar borders of the suspensory ligament on the outside of the limb and my first finger going on the dorsal and palmar borders of the suspensory ligament on the medial side of the limb. And if you start at the top of the body of the suspensory ligament and run your fingers down adjacent to those borders, they should remain uh, equally separated um, because the borders of the suspensory ligament should be parallel. In association with enlargement of a branch, you may find that as you're coming down the limb, your fingers and thumbs get pushed apart, telling you that there must be enlargement. This may not be visible um, just by looking at the limb, but by using this method of palpation, you may be able to identify enlargement. So if I see enlargement as determined by this, I'm always going to pay particular attention to palpation of the branches with the limb in a non-load position. Some of the horses with concurrent branch injuries will be painful on palpation, but a negative response certainly does not preclude the suspensory branches as being a contributor to pain. There were some horses, both with hind limb proximal suspensory desmopathy and also some horses with forelimb nameless, who did show some improvement after the low four-point block, which was associated with suspensory branch injury. Um, as I said previously, we always include the suspensory ligament branches in the ultrasonographic evaluation of any horse with hind limb proximal suspensory desmopathy. The same applies with forelimb proximal suspensory desmitis. We evaluate the branches and any horse which responds positively to a low four-point block will always have the suspensory branches um, evaluated ultrasonographically as well. Um, for inclusion in the study to be classified as a suspensory ligament branch injury, we graded the branch injuries uh, ultrasonographically according to the scale proposed by uh, Ramsen et al. in their study of thoroughbreds. Uh, and this, this was a grading scale from zero to three, um, and grade one lesions, which are very mild abnormalities, were not included in the current study because we know that we can see those in horses without associated clinical signs, whereas we know that horses with grade two or three lesions uh, may have associated pain and lameness. So for inclusion as a suspensory branch injury, the horse had to have a grade two or a grade three out of three ultrasonographic lesion but not necessarily correlating with lameness? Um, most of them would have been lame, had some degree of pain associated with that, but not all of them. Some of them will have been clinically silent at that time. Okay, interesting. Um, in this study, um, in terms of hind limb proximal suspensory desmitis, what was the age distribution of, of affected horses that you saw? Well, the median age was eight with an interquartile range of between six and 10, but the range was between two and 24 years of age. So when we look at the two groups, we had 115 horses, which represented about 13% of the horses, were up to five years of age, with a median of five, but a range of between two and five years of age. And those two-year-olds will not have done any work at all. They were found lame in the field. Whereas the older horses, 
which comprise 808, that's about 88% of the horses. The median age was nine with a range of between six and 24. So a pretty substantial age range. Yeah, substantial age range. But the, and how the, the median being eight or nine um, is pretty typical of many of the causes of lameness that we identify. It seems to be a very common age for lameness presentation. Okay. Um, how many of them had concurrent uh, forelimb proximal suspensory desmitis or branch injuries? Okay, so the presence of any concurrent suspensory ligament injury was 28.6%. When we consider the suspensory branch injuries, they occurred in 195 horses, that's about 21%. And of those, they were predominantly hind limb suspensory branch injuries. They represented 20%, whereas 2% had forelimb suspensory branch injuries. And then of the forelimb proximal suspensory desmitis, that occurred in 93 horses, so that's approximately 10% of the horses. If we look at the breakdown with respect to the age categories, when we think about the horses five years of age or less, concurrent suspensory ligament injuries were present in 37%, and in the older age group, only 27%. So a 10% difference being more common in the younger horses. So why do you think that you saw a higher prevalence in these younger horses five years or under? Well, that's a very interesting question, I think, because people have previously said, are these horses overworked? Is this, is, is this why they're developing the condition? And in fact, it was not related to work intensity. And given that it wasn't related to work intensity, it suggests that there must be some genetic predisposition to injury. Yeah, interesting. Um did you identify any other risk factors for either hind limb proximal suspensory desmitis alone or with the uh, coexisting suspensory ligament pathology? Yes, we did. And I think these were very interesting. Uh, first of all, we determined an effect of breed. So compared with thoroughbred crosses, warm blood crosses, thoroughbreds and Irish draft horses were more likely to have concurrent suspensory ligament injury. And then we looked at body weight to height ratio, and that was highly significant. So for every unit increase in the body weight to height ratio, um, there was an odds ratio of 2.27. So that's a substantial increased risk. So um, I think that you have to think about body weight to height ratio and what that means. There's a very good correlation, which has been previously demonstrated, between body weight to height ratio and body condition score. And body condition score, we know, relates to obesity. So it appears that obesity is a high risk factor. Um, we didn't body condition score every horse um, prospectively. But when we look back at some of the more recent data, we have horses which have body condition scores of 7 and 7.5 out of 9. So these were definitely overweight horses. And I think this was a very interesting observation that we showed that um, this high body weight to height ratio was a very significant risk factor in addition to breed and in addition to, as we've already discussed, age, um, the, the young horses being more at risk. 
Okay, so the the risk factors are, are really kind of interesting from a, a clinical perspective. Um, is there any other kind of clinical relevance that you take away from this that we should be considering in future? Well, I think we've got an increasing body of evidence that there may be genetic susceptibility. I've certainly seen a number of breeding stallions, which I know have proximal suspensory desmopathy, which have continued to be used for breeding purposes and have produced offspring with proximal suspensory desmopathy. And I think we, as a profession, probably have to take a stand on this and advise against breeding from affected horses. So I think that this is of a, a, a very real clinical relevance. Likewise, I'm often asked when I'm presented with a mare which has multiple problems, ah, well, shall I use her for breeding purposes? And I say, well, I don't think that um, being lame is a good selection criteria for being a broodmare. Uh, Well, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, I think that brings us to the end of this edition of the podcast. So thank you very much, Sue, for talking to me and thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for listening to this equine veterinary education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash eve.